Good morning. My name is Tony Baker. I'm the lead pastor here at Gateway. If you're visiting with us today, we are so glad that you're here. You're our guest. And uh, we are finishing up a two-week series, as Brandon mentioned. Uh, Today, if you're online joining us, welcome. Hey there. Glad you're here uh, with us. And uh, we would love to see you sometime. So, as I said, this is the end of a two-week series on generosity. Last week, I dealt more with the dollars, and this week, we're going to deal more with the cents, part of what it means to be generous and how we should live our life. Let me start by saying this today. You all know that it's important to serve one another, right? Let me try that again. Otherwise, i got a lot of work to do with you all today. Uh, you all know that it's important to serve one another, right? But today... I just want to make sure that you understand the weight of what Jesus is saying when he says this. Whoever wants to be great among you must first be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. So we all understand and know that we should serve one another, but today I just want to make sure that we understand the weight of what Jesus is saying in this. Because the truth is, in all we do in the church, in all we do in Christianity, throughout the world, in our communities, and what we're doing here today, this gets at the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So, whether you are great or whether you are unimportant in this world and the next, which unimportant is the opposite of great. I I, I played with my thesaurus on that. I thought, well, maybe I could just say awful. But then, you know, that doesn't sound good, right? Unimportant sounds better than whether you're great or you're just awful. Is directly tied to how you serve. I didn't say that. He did. Greatness is tied to your servant's heart. Not your power, not your influence, not your position in society or in your family or in your co-worker's world, not in how much you control your environment. Listen, your marriage, your children, the relationship with them, your friends and your family, your co-workers, even your church and in the community in which you live, and anyone else that you care about in this world will either experience you as great or awful based on how you serve them. And your ability to grasp and follow, your ability, my ability to grasp and follow the example that Jesus gives us in our text today will determine how great you are, how important you are, how influential and powerful you are. I know, because as I'm writing this sermon, I'm thinking, but they know this. And I know that you know all this. I mean, we've all heard the famous quotes, right? Who, the famous quote, the next quote. Ask, your, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. 
You've all heard that, right? Americans are servants. All over the news this week, you know, and all over the TV, you hear about all these great servants of our country. Because there's something ingrained in us that service is good. And maybe it goes back to our leaders as they make these statements about serving. But ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So we know this. Service has a special place in our culture. We've all seen the commercials for volunteer.org, right? Where our government is making calls to our people to volunteer, to give of your time and your talents and your treasure. Or maybe you've seen ads to join the Peace Corps and you were actually tempted until you saw where maybe they go. We all know that serving is a good thing and we all know we should serve in some way. But my question for you and me today is this. Does doing good and serving make me great? Well, yeah, pastor. You just said, and Jesus said, that if you want to be great, serve. And if you want to be first, be a slave to all. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and it was snack time? Y'all remember that? I know some of you are a little older than me. Some of you are younger. Do you remember snack time when the teacher would, all the students were, all 30 of you were in your desks and you're kind of watching the clock and you're like two minutes past snack time and you know it's snack time? And the teacher's like, okay kids, it's time to line up for snack time. Single file line by the door, and we will go together to the cafeteria. Y'all remember this? Maybe you were in a weird school, but I remember this. And as soon as the teacher said, okay, line up single file. Man, I mean, you heard desks flying, chairs flying. People were screaming and yelling and clawing and pushing. and I mean, all the kids were like running to the door, right? Why? Why? They want to be first. As though there's only three snacks and 30 of us. Right? There's just not enough for all of us. And so they all, we all ran to the door and we'd all fight. And it was the strong ones and the popular ones that were always the first ten in line. How many of you got stuck at the back of the line? Yeah. Yeah. Because you were just too nice, right? Too slow? <laughs> well, you know, the, the strong will survive, man. That's all I got to say. The strong will survive, you know. You don't look like you missed a snack or two, right? So listen, neither do I, right? Neither do I. But uh, we all ran to the door, and then here's what would happen. We'd all fight, and you would get in our lines, and the strong ones and the popular ones were up front, and all the uh, weak and tired and slow ones were in the back, and we're like, oh, I hope there's enough cheese sticks, you know. And about that time, the teacher would say, everybody in line? Okay, I want you ten to go to the back of the line, and I want you ten to go to the front of the line. Oh, you'd hear this moan, you know. It's like, we fought to get here, man. We were, we were first. This ain't fair. 
Anybody have a teacher do that? Yeah, I had teachers do that. They saw everyone fighting. It's as though the teacher went to Sunday school that week and read this scripture, right? The first will be, and and, then everybody just kind of learned, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. Day two. Okay, kids, it's snack time. Line up single file by the door. Silence. Nobody's moving. Nobody's running for the front of the line. Nobody's scraping and clawing. The kids are kind of looking around. The slow ones have started because they figured, it's going to take me a while to get there. (laughs) Nobody's running and fighting for the front. Why? Even kids can learn how to scam the system, man. They've learned this is the way it works. I'm just going to take my time. And I'm just going to make my way slowly to the front or the back because eventually the back will go to the front and the front will go to the back. And they learn this. <laughs> Could you imagine being a visitor in that class that week? Maybe a visiting teacher and they're like to the teacher, wow, what a great selfless group of kids. I just want to meet their parents. I just want to know, how in the world did you get them to be so giving and so selfless and so... And then she explains, no, yesterday I made all the front go to the back and the back go to the front. And they all learned, you know, just let the people go first because eventually you'll get to go first. And so my question is this, does it simply by doing good, does simply by doing good and serving others mean that I am great? Think of the classroom as a micro-kingdom. Now that everyone is willing to serve the other and let them go first, the question is, has the kids really changed? Simply because they're willing to serve or willing to give or willing to yield, does that really mean that the kids or the people of the kingdoms have really changed? Are they really doing it for the person in front of them or are they simply still seeking self-interest? The truth is they're still looking out for number one. My fear today, as our younger generation is coming up, I read about their willingness to change their world. I read about their desire to make a difference. I hear about their... And listen, this next generation, Generation Z and the one coming up after that, they have the potential to be the next greatest generation of our time. They do want to serve, and they do want to give, and they do want to do all they can do to change their world and make it a better place. But I fear that they think simply by serving and doing is going to make the world a better place. We all know how it works, right? Businesses know how to be generous with their money so that they get a better tax write-off at the end. Political leaders, all of them, know just when to show up at the soup kitchen for the photo op because they know if people think they are humanitarians that they will people will vote for them 
College students work in social organizations during their summer months because it looks good on a resume. High schoolers know that summer volunteer works looks great on a college application. Husbands will take the trash out to get whatever husbands want. Kids clean the kitchen so they can go out and get the car on the weekend. People are very willing to serve, but the question is, have they really changed? What is our motive behind that? My first thought this week was, wow, what an easy sermon to preach. I get to come to you this week and give you a sermon about how we need to serve our community, serve our families, be more involved in the church, do more good in the world. However, when I really began to dig into our scripture today, wow, I was convicted when I put it into context and the stories around what's happening in our text today, when I saw what Jesus says in light of the fact that He's just given His third warning about the cross, when I looked at our text and I see what's coming for Jesus, it made me guilty about some of my service. Because the truth is, sometimes we serve for us. I realize that being a servant is much more than just giving of my time and my talents and my treasure. Doing good things is good, but a servant's heart that Jesus described is very different than simply doing good. So, let's just jump right in. Mark chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to have it up here for you. Let me read the first three verses for you. Then James and John. Now, these are two disciples who have been with them. for. We know James and we know John. John is the same John who wrote the book of John and Revelation and First and Second and Third John. He is the youngest, the beloved He liked to remind everybody in his book that he was the beloved disciple. The sons of Zebedee, or as some have called them, the sons of thunder, right? I'm a, a, come from a family of two boys, and I just thought it'd be cool to maybe my brother and I call ourselves the sons of thunder. Y'all can figure out if that's my dad or my mom, but, you know, I am the sons of thunder, right? One of the sons. They came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) Wow, what a bold, wow. That's like a blank check, right? Just give us a blank check. We we have been with you from the beginning all the way back in Mark chapter 1. Man, we were there through thick and thin. We are your disciples. We just want a blank check. We want you to, now Jesus is smarter than that. And so Jesus replies, as Jesus normally does to a statement like that or a question, he replies with a question. Well, what do you want me to do? Depends, right? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit on the left in your glory. 
I think, was that verse 37? Yes. Stop there. I know. When I first read this, I thought, wow, how terrible. Right? I mean, these are a couple of selfish, glory-hungry punks that just, what about the other ten? And those of you that think of other people, you're like, well, what about the other ten? I mean, Peter's a pretty good guy. He's one of the three insiders. What about Peter? I kind of get the feeling that they kind of beat Peter to the chase because Peter, Peter is bold and he's strong and he's powerful. And I think one of them just were, they were fighting and James probably looked at John and said, man, you're the baby of the family. And uh, if you don't get ahead of Peter, he's going to take your spot because you're not taking mine, right? And so I just kind of think that, but I'm thinking, wow, what little selfish guys, punks who coming to Jesus to ask such a such a request it's just a remarkable but i got to be honest with you i kind of admire them after i looked at it a little closer our first thoughts about them is that they, you know they are selfish and self-centered and they're trying to get ahead of the other 10 but there's something about their request that i'm just being honest i actually admire their zeal and their ambition there is nothing wrong with zeal and ambition. And I think Jesus admired it too. Mark, who calls them the sons of thunder, probably because they are fiery and ambitious. Here's the thing. I think Jesus was flabbergasted at their request because of their zeal and ambition to be at such an active role and part of the new kingdom that is coming. I just kind of think they've been with Jesus from the beginning. Mark does this really good job of showing how slow the disciples are. And many times in the book of Mark, you'll see where Mark will say, you know, Jesus will say to the disciples, how come you're so slow and so ignorant? Why are you just can't get this? But I think James and John, in their ambition and their zeal, are starting to add things up. I think they're starting to see what is about to happen, and they're starting to see that something big is about to happen. The kingdom of God is coming. That's the king, and I want to be right next to him when it happens. I think that they showed great faith, that they began to grasp what was about to happen. Jesus going to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. Now, they were misguided, and they misunderstood what was really about to happen. But I think in their minds, these two, although they were quick to jump without planning, (laughs) you know, they didn't have no board meeting. They didn't have some three, five, four, six-year plan. They didn't say, okay, let's work our way up the ladder. They just said, I'm just going to jump right in. When this thing goes down, when this thing happens, I want to be right in the middle of it. And so they come to Jesus And they said, look, I want to be at your left and at your right because whatever you're about to do, I want to help. I want to be there when it happens. Sure, they bit off more than they could chew. And sure, the other ten were still scratching their head trying to figure out what Jesus is really all about. And I just kind of think that James and John jumped to the front of the line because they're starting to figure it out. They pull each other aside. They're brothers. Look, man, this is our opportunity. 
See those 10 guys over there scratching their heads? Yeah, they're dumb. They don't get it. I mean, I love them, but, you know, Peter's a little slow. We find that out later when John beats him to the, you know, John reminds us that he even beat Jesus, Peter to the, uh, the, the empty tomb. Remember that story? They're slow. They're not getting it. This is our chance. Let's, let's strike while the iron's hot. They bit off more than they chew. They got a little bit ahead of their skis. But their motive, even though it was selfish and self-centered and self-serving. Listen, their motive was to be next to Jesus. Listen to me. There's never nothing wrong with that. There's never anything wrong with wanting to just be as close as you can get to him. And I think Jesus was honored by that. I mean, sure, they were selfish and self-centered, and Jesus needed to teach them and change their heart a little here coming up. But just this idea of their zeal. Verse 38. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. I'm going to explain that here in a minute. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm being baptized with? Verse 39, 40. And they said, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right... Now, Jesus is just honest with them. But to sit at my right hand or my left, that's not for me to decide. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Stop there. Jesus, admiring their zeal, even though they didn't understand what it really meant to be great, what it really meant to be important, what it really meant to be important in the kingdom of God. When he said, drink this cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with, Jesus is talking about his death. This is an interesting play on words here because Jesus explains to them, my death you will experience. I don't know if they fully understood what Jesus was fully talking about, but Jesus is explaining to them that the drink of the cup and the baptism is his death and his burial in the ground. But here's the key to these three verses. Jesus just tied, now get this, Jesus just tied greatness, not to his power, not to his influence, not to his position, or even his nature being God, Jesus just tied He just tied greatness to suffering. Now that's completely opposite of what we hear. That is totally in opposition to what we understand to be great 
to achieve, to raise, rise to the top, to become influential, to be powerful. We, this is the complete opposite of what the world teaches us that is greatness. Jesus is now teaching these two, look, what I'm about to do, my greatness is tied to this cup and this baptism, and they are suffering and death. And if you want to be great, follow me. We might miss it if we just read on through it. But Jesus is really saying greatness has more to do with suffering than power. James and John want to be great in the kingdom, but their idea of greatness is tied to the world's idea of greatness. Power, control, position equal greatness. Jesus, with his question about can you drink, is in complete contradiction to what they think is great. If you're great because you are on my right, or if you're great because you're on my left, then how great is the one sitting in the middle? And here is the one sitting in the middle that everyone wants to be next to, saying, listen, my glory, the glory that, I, that you want to share with me in, is not coming because I'm about to exert my power. It's not coming because I'm going to Jerusalem to take control. It's not because of my position or my nature being God. No, my glory, my greatness is tied to a cross of suffering and shame and rejection. And Jesus looks at them and he says, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be great? Do you want to do incredible things? Then don't follow the world's idea of greatness. But suffer by denying yourself and following me. There's irony in this. There were two men on the right and on the left at the crucifixion. I won't go as far, but in my back of my mind, I kind of think that what Jesus is talking about, this place belongs to those who have been prepared. I almost wonder if he's really talking about the two on the side, the right and the left at the cross. Isn't it ironic that James and John want to be great they want to be important and powerful. They want to have prestige. They want to rise to the top simply by going past the cross right to the throne. And here's Jesus going to the cross, and there's a place on the right, and there's a place on the left, and it's occupied by two thieves. Wow. Irony. And then James and John, yes, we can. We can do this. Mark chapter 41, or chapter 10, verse 41. When the ten heard about this, uh-oh. <laughs> Remember the ten guys back here scratching their head? You know, James and John are like, hey, you know, these guys are slow. Let's go strike while the iron's fought. The other ten heard what was going on, and this is not good. And then they became indignant, angry, furious, 
jealous. How could you? You're the youngest of all of us. You know, you're, how could you do this to us? What a stab in the back. And then Jesus calls them all together. It's almost as though Jesus has to step into the middle before it becomes an all-out brawl, right? I wonder how many times he had to do that with these guys. He says, you know that those who regard you as rulers, as ru- who you regard as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. So here's the teaching moment for Jesus. He gets in the middle of this, of James and John seeking some kind of greatness. But the truth is, the other ten were as well, because they became indignant. They wanted those spots too. And here's the teaching moment that Jesus does. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Now listen, not so with you. There's the difference. Not so with you. You, my followers, you who are following me, Jesus, this is not how you will be. You will be of a kingdom that is different. You won't get caught up in all of these struggles for power, struggles for influence, struggles for control. You will not be like that. In my kingdom, it's different. And he says, instead, whoever, and here's the key, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. I wish he would have stopped there. Then I wouldn't have been doing this whole, then we just serve, right? But then he says this, and you must be, he says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Slave. Jesus uses this moment to teach them. Here's where he opens us up to the real meaning of greatness, the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. Jesus, in these verses, puts His life and death along with the lives and the suffering of His followers in complete opposition to this world. In complete and utter opposition to the idea of what power really is. The world relies on coercion and control and lording over you to control you and manipulate you for power. But first, Jesus says, to be first in line. But Jesus' followers should be in absolute contrast to this. We should not really care about that kind of power. And that kind of governance. And that kind of whatever someone tries to hold over me. Greatness among Jesus' followers is measured by my ability to live as a servant and as slaves to my brother and sister. Even if we have to suffer oppression at the hands of those who have ultimate power, we still live with a servant's heart. And then Jesus says this in verse 45. Not 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. All of the theologians have come together around this text and they argue their theories of atonement. What does that theory of atonement? It really is a theory of how God saves us. What exactly happens when God saves us? And they all argue these theories and they speak direct, but because this verse speaks directly to how we are saved. How are we saved? Well, the blood of Jesus, really? There's a little more to that. It has to do with your ability to grasp and understand this concept of being a servant and a slave. It has to do with the heart of the individual. And so theologians argue this. I'm not going to debate those theories today because I happen to think that all the theories of atonement, God's salvation is so big and so great that you could pull from all the theories and not all of them can even explain it completely. It's just that incredible. But one thing that all of us theologians can agree on is this. Jesus' death on a cross was not just a crucifixion of another criminal, but it actually does something in us and through us. It was an event that changed all of history. Because of Jesus' nature as God and His title as the Son of God and His position and His immense power, He could have simply exerted His power here on earth and took control. He could have set Himself up as King because He is King. But because He did not, and his willingness to lay down his very life in perfect opposition to the sinful ways of this world, their abuse of power and influence, a new kingdom has been born on earth. And God calls all of us to belong to that kingdom, to follow the example of Jesus, to look to the cross as our way into greatness. To find our position and our importance and our self-image and all that that we seek to find and control here in the worldly way. To simply look to the cross as a way to wholeness and health and mental health and physical health and spiritual health. It's the way of the kingdom of laying down my life for the other. And for those who believe in the cross and the death of Jesus, they are liberated, ransomed. You say, what do you mean liberated from what? From the way of the world. From the way of sinful ways to use power and influence to set free all of us who believe to live to God and to live toward each other. Jesus ransomed us. Amen. Jesus ransomed us. Amen. Jesus ransomed you. 
He set you free. You don't have to fight those battles. You don't have to fight for control and fight for power and fight for co- through coercion. You don't have to be the way you are to your husband or your wife or your children or your co-workers. You don't have to constantly be scratching and clawing to get ahead because in Jesus' world, you're already ahead. You're already there. You simply have to embrace the way of the cross. And it frees you. It liberates you. His love for us. His servanthood toward us. Even when we did not deserve it. His laying down all His power, all His influence, His very nature. That selfless act of God Himself liberated us. And showed us the way to live. Jesus is saying in this text that the only way to live in the kingdom of God, the only way that glory will come to each of us, is not through power and coercion, but through service born from a heart of love toward the other in our life. Not by way of power and influence and popularity and control and coercion, but by the way of perfect love. Listen to this. God's kingdom is not a place, but a people where hearts and minds are willing to lay down body for others who don't deserve it, but need it. That is the kingdom of God. And we don't have to wait for that kingdom. Jesus brought it. It's here with us now. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I just want to make it to heaven, man. (laughs) Right? I just, I mean, I think I'm going to come in, but man, the fire's going to be close, and I might even be smoking a little on the backside. But I just want to make it in. (laughs) Who wants to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus? A couple of you be like, I'm there, man, I'll be there. But most of us are like, that's not my ambition. <laughs> I just want to get in. The problem is you're living like it. I actually respect and have a lot of admiration for James and John to want to aspire to such great heights in the kingdom. The problem isn't the ambition. The problem is their motive to get there. And we all just want to make it in, right? To which I would say, maybe we all ought to be a little bit more like James and John. Listen, the purpose of the gospel is not to just get to heaven, but to make us more like Jesus. That changes everything for you searching, following coming to church, trying to be good. It's not about that. It's about trying to be more like Jesus. There are certain things we do, disciplines we do, that help that happen. But the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. It is a transformation to be more like the person of Jesus. I know what else you might be thinking. I'm pretty good. I serve down at the soup kitchen once in a while. I serve my church. My community, I raked my neighbor's leaves last week, right? Or shoveled snow because it's snow still on the ground. I can't believe it. 
I'm depressed by it. I've done good things. And we should do good things. But listen, the goal is not to just do good things. What does it mean to be a slave to all? Remember when I said I wish Jesus wouldn't have put that in there? But he did. A slave. The word used is doulos. It says pertaining to a state of being completely, now listen, completely controlled by someone or something. Jesus actually says that if you want to be great in the kingdom, don't just serve, don't just give of your time and your talents and your treasure, but put yourself so far in submission to the other person that you are no longer even in control. They are. Isn't that what Jesus did with Pilate? And the leaders of the Jewish people, when he went to the cross, all the power and immense power he had. He even told Pilate, I believe, you know, whatever power you have has been given to you from heaven. If I want to call down 10,000 angels right now, I'll do it. But he didn't. He submitted himself to the submission of Pilate and the leaders. What does it mean to be a slave of all? Listen, this is the bottom line. Don't just give time, talents, and treasure, but instead lay down your life for the other. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus all the way to greatness. Let's pray. Here's what I'd like you to do. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. If you're here today and God is just like really like me this week, just speaking to you and challenging you. And you say, you know, Pastor, I, Tony, I just, uh, I've been serving, I've been giving, I've been doing my thing, but there's strings attached. This is kind of for me. Maybe I'm still being influenced by the sinful nature in my heart. Today's the day. To die to that self. And truly ask Jesus to come into your heart and sanctify your heart. You say, sanctify my heart. What do you mean? That means he sets it completely apart for himself. That you no longer serve out of selfish ambition and motive. And John, John and James understood this later in their life. They followed Jesus, but their motive was wrong. Jesus can change that in you. The power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. And you're saying, I need to lay down my life because I believe what is being said today, that the kingdom is a people who give and lay down their life. Would you just stand? Just stand where you're at. Say, I'm, I want to pray today and ask Jesus to come into my heart and invite. Yeah, just stand right where you're at. I'm going to pray with you. Just stand. Say, I need this in my life. I need to love the other more purely, more perfectly. Amen. Listen, if we don't have love, we ain't got nothing. And Jesus brings the love. And you are acknowledging today, and I just want everyone 
to stand now. Everyone stand and say this prayer with me today. Just repeat back to me. Jesus, your way is difficult. You had ultimate power. Ultimate influence. All the cards were stacked in your favor. Yet you gave it all up for us. Your love is mind-boggling. Your love is extravagant. I confess to you today, even when I serve, my heart is self-serving. I control what I serve. I control when I serve. I control how much I give. I'm not yet a slave to all. Baptize me in your Holy Spirit so that my love might be your love for others around me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give yourself a hand. Jesus is awesome. An incredible God. And Brandon's going to come up, but I say go and love with the heart of Jesus those around you today. Amen.